so happy to be here with you this morning. Excited to be able to open uh, God's Word again. I have been uh, challenged uh, mightily through our study in Exodus. Uh, one of my memories on uh, Facebook, I don't have very many because I post a little bit, but I haven't been posting that much, but it was this time last year we started Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. And so I'm, I'm very happy that uh, we have diligently and um, truthfully and um, whatever other uh, adverb you want to use, have searched and gone through the scriptures together, have studied and learned. I'm encouraged by what I hear coming from our missional community groups, the conversations that we've had, the problems, issues, the um, questions that we're working through. I want to challenge you to always uh, go to missional community gatherings ready um, to participate, but also to, to draw something from. Uh, I want to challenge you also as we're finishing Exodus, and, and as I hope uh, this has been something you haven't done as we've gone through Exodus, I hope that you haven't been um, waiting for certain Ten Commandments to look at as like a gotcha moment, maybe for your spouse or for a friend or um, for somebody in our church. You know, the best, oftentimes I will admit, I have thought, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. But, but, uh, if, if we're being truthful, if we're being people of love and people who consider our own selves the log that's in our own eye before we consider the sawdust that's in others, we would just say, boy, I'm glad I was here to hear that sermon. So I pray that every sermon that is preached, we find something uh, applicable um, we find something helpful, and we find something really life-changing because that's what the Word of God does. I want you to hear this, and this is absolutely true. I think about how the sermon affects me as much, if not more, than I think about how it affects you. Do you understand? I'm not just telling you to do this or asking you to do this. I'm doing this in practice. I don't preach on Sunday mornings thinking, boy, if Blake could only get this right. That's not what I do. That's not what I do. I go through the sermon, I go through the text, and I think, how can this change me? How can this affect me? And I think, I hope that you see that in my preaching. I hope that I preach to you in a sincere, in a sincere, in a kind, but also a convictional sort of way. Not just convictional about our church, but convictional about me. So don't let this be gotcha moments. Don't let this be, you know, if so-and-so only heard this, let it be something that you be glad that you were here to hear. Um, I want to go through our uh, hand signals, and I can see uh, every week you don't know it, but your faces say more than your actions. Every week someone's rolling their eyes or something like that. But every week I'm teaching you something that will help you to remember these ten commands throughout probably the rest of your life, essentially, especially if you think about them at all. So, number one, no other gods. Number two, no graven images. Number three, watch your words. Don't use the name of the Lord God in vain. Number four, and I've been critiqued on this. You can do it however you want. You can just say, I get in my four-door, I mean my four-wheel car, okay, unless you ride a motorcycle. I get in my four-wheel car with my four doors, and I go to church gathering. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, don't kill I shall not kill. Number seven, if two people are together and they decide to go join another person in marriage or any other way, that's adultery. It was number eight. <laughs> What's number eight? Yeah, right. Okay, and sorry. You'll remember this for the rest of your life. Um, in, in many countries, they cut off appendages for stealing, and so... You might lose some fingers for stealing, so that's the steal. Number four, if I'm mean, number nine, if you're saying one thing and everybody else is saying something else, it's probably a lie. Number ten, don't covet. Don't covet. Okay, so I proved without fail how important and how easy those are to remember. 
nonetheless, nevertheless, before this sermon series through the book or through the Ten Commandments, I had not practiced those in 10 years or longer, and they all came back pretty readily to me. So we're nearing the end of our study through the 10 words of the 10 commands of God. For me personally, it has been enriching. It's been a challenging one that has worked to refine my own life um, during our study. Now I trust that the Word of God has done the same for you. And if it hasn't yet, to go back through some of these studies, uh, through these sermons, to read through some of these commands and some of the cross-references of those and allow God to change your heart and mind through those. I trust that it has, these words have taken root in your soul and you've begun to sort of take necessary changes for the glory of Christ to please the Lord. Not as a means of checking off ten virtues or, or making a list of things that we'll find or earn or increase favor with God. But as a means of living a life that honors God and cherishes our neighbor. That's why we exist, right? To honor God, to give glory to God, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. If not... Why wouldn't it just be easier for God to just take us off the earth as soon as we become Christians? It would make more sense if God didn't have a plan for us to live our lives for His glory, to love our neighbor as ourselves, for Him to just remove us and take us to eternity with Him. But He has left us. He has left us here with those commands. The last table of these ten words, these ten commands, we, as we've talked about before, Commands 5 through 10. Remember, there are two tables, really. The commands 1 through 4, they're specifically how we honor God. And commands 5 through 10, specifically how we honor God by loving our neighbor. The last five have been focused a lot on honoring our neighbor, loving our neighbor. And we're at number 9 today. And today I want to focus on most of our time on the heart of the ninth command. The heart of the ninth command is concerned for the well-being of the collective or the community as a whole. The concern of the ninth command, like the eighth, like the sixth, like the fifth, like the tenth, is concerned about the community as a whole. It's the ninth command approaches something bigger than just its initial context. That is the love for our neighbor, our concern for our community, our spiritual community here at Vintage Church, but also the community uh, at large, and how we treat people in general. So we will spend the, uh, our, uh, most of our time today discussing truthfulness. Truthfulness. Because of the rule of categories, we know that generic and general truthfulness is something that is covered do you remember the rule of categories? I've probably mentioned it two or three times, but just in case, the rule of category states that every command of the Ten Commands covers that specific command, that specific objective one command, but it also covers a range of commands that are sort of under the umbrella of that command. But I do, because the ninth command doesn't say, don't lie. That's not what it says. I do want to cover the specific first. I want to cover the specific context of the ninth command. And then I want to cover just truthfulness in general for for the rest of our time. Verse 16 of Exodus 20, the ninth command, is really coming to us from the context of a court of law. So it is governing... The ninth command is governing the testimony someone gives in a public trial. This is a lying witness. Someone who gives false testimony against someone else in a trial. This is the literal first context of the ninth command. Now, from this perspective, we see how important the ninth command is. Especially in the context of people from ancient times or when this was written or even for years and years and years after this is written. People in ancient times were given little to no protection. 
almost sort of like it is now in the court of public opinion. There was no presumed innocence. There was no presumed innocence. People were convicted with little presentation of evidence and often without the ability to give a defense. Often convincing someone only convicting someone, excuse me, only on the testimony of one witness. Which is important, which makes being truthful, which makes being a person of integrity, which makes not bearing false witness important because everything hinged on that witness. Often one person's word against another. So the testimony of a false witness was not just something that was hurtful. It was not just something that caused temporary pain. The testimony of a false witness could often mean life or death for someone. Now, for the people of God, it was a little bit different. For God's children, God set up rules that would not allow someone to convict based on the testimony of one witness. There must have been two or three witnesses plus more evidence. Two or three witnesses plus more evidence. So it was God's command that two or three witnesses be brought in order to convict someone. As a matter of fact, you could not convict someone and, and the penalty be capital punishment unless there was more than one witness. Now, this is the premise of one of the most out of, uh, out, taken out of context verses ever in the history of the Bible. You know, you, many people have said, well, when we meet together in church or when we meet together with just a few people, where two or three or more are gathered, there God will be. This is the most out of context verse in the history of the Bible. Here's what that verse means. If you bring two or three witnesses to someone in the act of church discipline, the Lord approves what you're doing. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean where two or three are gathered in a Bible study. That verse is specifically used in the context of church discipline. And it connects to the idea that you can't just go to someone blatantly accusing them of falsehood or blatantly accusing them of a crime or blatantly accusing them of something in the church. Church discipline is required in, in, as it's enacted in its full extent to have the witness, the testimony of more than one person. And if we go in integrity and honesty and truthfulness to someone in church discipline with two or three or more people, the Lord will be there. The Lord will confirm that your act is a righteous act. It doesn't mean that if you have Bible study in your house with two or three or more people, that now God may be there because you're meeting and you're reading and you're praying and all of that stuff. But it doesn't give confirmation that you can have a church at your house just because you have two or three people together, together with you. That's not what that is. Now that's a little side sermon, but it's an important connection that you need to make. It's an important connection you need to make because that is, that is a safeguard that the Lord put amongst his people in Israel and he put it in his church so that we don't just go around blatantly throwing false accusations about God's people. It is vastly important that, friends, that even carries over to the Internet. That even carries over to the Internet when we are accusing or choosing to accuse people who belong to the body of Christ. There has to be a testimony of what they are doing. Which really, honestly, integrity and honest, honesty wasn't just important for the testimony of the witness, but it is supposed to be how the entire legal system is run. Judges, attorneys, witnesses, and clients all doing what is right, with the most important caveat being with the best interest of others in mind. Friends, giving false testimony destroys the good of the community. It destroys the good of the collective. It can rob a person of their character or even save a person of justice that they should meet when they've done wrong. And it breaks God's laws. But we know that there's much more than, to this command than just bearing false witness in a courtroom. We know that the Ten Commands actually highlight the worst kind of breaking each law, right? Not honoring your father and mother is the worst type of disobedience to authority, right? 
It's, there are other forms of disobedience to authority, but not honoring your father or mother is the worst type. Murder is the worst type of hate. Adultery is the worst type of sin against the body. And bearing false witness is the worst type of lying. But Jesus in Matthew 5 gives us a commentary on Exodus 20 verse 16. And he gets to the heart of the testimony of the, of the ninth command, which is why we can take this ninth command further. Turn with me to Matthew 5, 33 through 37 really quickly. Or flick with me or push with me, whatever. To Matthew 5, 33 through 37. This is Jesus' commentary on Exodus twenty sixteen. And in it, he closes, he concludes the commentary by giving us a standard of what should be acceptable as, as it concerns the integrity of our hearts, our mouths, our minds, everything that it has to do with a Christian. Matthew five thirty three through 37. Again, you have heard that it, uh, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what, you have, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. And I will say another little side sermon, friends. I think it breaks. I think it transgresses the law of God to use generically, I swear. Especially I swear to God because that breaks multiple commands of the Ten Commands. But saying I swear transgresses the law of God, but it is more telling about our integrity than anything. Because Jesus says, the reason I gave you the ninth command is so that your yes, so that you would live in a way that your yes would simply be yes and your no would simply be no. When you say something, the people around you, and we're going to get into this more. I'm putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. But when you say something, the people around you shouldn't have to say let me go find out what so-and-so thinks about that. Or, or let, me, let me just see what will happen with what they're saying. The, the ninth command was written, and we will follow this theme in our sermon today, so that when you say yes, I can say, that is a yes. And when you say no, instead of saying, well, maybe if I just beg a little more, parents to children, maybe if I beg just a little bit more, they will relent and give in. When you say no, your children should say, it's a no. I mean, it doesn't work that way perfectly, obviously. Sometimes you have to say no, you know, and that's, that's how it works sometimes. Because children if you don't have them, are relentless. Okay? They are relentless. Okay? Sometimes you can work to be a person of integrity, and that still, still. But, but friends, your children are going to grow up, and eventually your children will be at a point where when you say yes or when you say no, they will know one way or the other what you mean. And the heart of the ninth command is that you live in such a way that when you say yes, people believe you. And when you say no, people believe you. And there's no swearing to God necessary. There's no I swear necessary. It's just simply yes or no. Jesus said it's not just about bearing false witness, but about making oaths and swearing. And then he ends this section with something that covers a multitude of areas on our topic. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. That it would be said about us that the measure of our integrity was simply yes or no. And that was enough. That when we said something, people listened and trusted. Friends, when we live a life of integrity, the same thing can be said about us. But there are some big things and there are some small things that chip away at our yeses being yes and our no being no. 
As we've done several times through our studies of the Ten Commands, I'm, I'm going to spend our time talking about the negative aspect and a little time talking about the positive. Now, we have a lot going on today at the end of the sermon, so I'm going to end earlier. So I'm not going to fully develop these positive aspects again, but understand that they're there and you're all smart enough to develop them and there, are, there is more time for discussion in missional community gathering. As a matter of fact, missional community leaders, I want you to be thinking about ways that you can prompt um, the positive aspect of this. What can we do to be more truthful? What steps can we take to be more truthful? So the first thing, really quickly, how, well, not really quickly on this one, but how do we break the ninth command? How do we break the ninth command? Lying is such a part of our culture as it has been every culture, but it is so often a part of our culture that truth and lies are indistinguishable. The book, The Day America Told the Truth, says that 91% of those surveyed lied routinely about matters they considered trivial. And 36% lied about important matters, while 86% lied about uh, lied regularly to their parents, 75% to friends, 73% to siblings, and 69% to spouses. It is no wonder that lying has become so prevalent in our culture when postmodernism has rejected an absolute truth in general. You may have heard it said, his truth or your truth, but you rarely hear someone say, the truth. The truth. No one is immune from lying. We have examples from this all over our culture. I've said it for longer than seven years. I have never doped as he had many times. The seven-time Tour de France winner lied to CNN Larry King's live, uh, Larry King in 2005, stripped of his titles. In 2013, he admitted having cheated. In 1919, Italian immigrant Charles Ponzi built a pyramid scheme around international postal reply coupons. Ponzi, who, who brought in $250,000 a day, it was estimated, around $3 million today, conned investors into sending him millions of dollars, promising eye-popping returns. Therefore, a Ponzi scheme has been dubbed, or a Ponzi scam, and it's paying one investor with the money from others. And his scam was the same, and it unraveled around 1920. Lies are prevalent in our culture. Paul is dead. Paul McCartney's rumored death in, 1966, in a 1966 car crash sent Beatle fans hunting for clues in the band's albums, including the 1969 release, Abbey Road. What about the famous words of this president, I am not a crook? Or this one, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. For many, lying is as much a part of their life as living is, as breathing is to living. But just because it is prevalent, just because it is everywhere, does not make it any less egregious of a sin. It does not make it any less of a transgression of the law of God. We can convince ourselves somehow that a little lie is not a bad lie because it only, it doesn't hurt. Or it's not a bad lie because it protects. But lying is lying. The Lord just doesn't see lying the same as our culture does. Proverbs 12.22 says that the Lord detests lying lips but he delights in people who are trustworthy. Proverbs 13.5, listen, the righteous hate what is false. John 8 says that liars belong to their father. Well, that's, that's not bad, right? Well, your father's the devil. Liars belong to their father. Their father, the devil. He is the father of lies. Proverbs 6 lists six things that the Lord hates. Proverbs 6, 17, six things that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination. He doesn't mention all the things that you would think. He doesn't mention illegal immigrants being an abomination. He doesn't mention homosexuality being an abomination, although that's mentioned later. He mentioned these six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination. The first one is pride. The second one is lying. And there is another one in there that has to do with lying, sowing seed of dissension amongst your brothers. Six saying the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination. Revelation 21.8 said that all liars will have their part 
in the, in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. James said that the tongue is like a massive forest fire set by a single careless individual. A lying tongue consumes everything in its path. Although the Bible says it is a small member, it corrupts the whole person and cannot be tamed by man. So no matter how, no matter how big or small lies or deceit or any other form of bearing false witness They are all major, and they are all transgressions of the law of God. How then do we break this commandment? How then do we break this command of not bearing false witness, of being a person who is truthful, of simply letting our yes be yes and our no be no? I have a few. The first is gossip or slander. We break this command when we participate, when we listen to gossip or slander. Gossip or slander are not they're not always exactly the same things, but they're often two sides of the same coin. Gossip and slander are both seen when we either spread a lie, misinformation, or even at times the truth about someone else. Doing so without their knowledge, in a demeaning way, or with little to no desire to offer productive advice or assistance. Gossip and slander are literally never victimless crimes. They are never victimless crimes. Both cause dissension, they break down our neighbors, and they dishonor God. These two also make it under Proverbs six seventeen categories of abominations, of the things that the Lord hates. A false witness and one who sows discord amongst his brothers, that's one that's mentioned. Or those are the ones that are mentioned. Gossip attempts to steal the treasure of God, excuse me, the treasure of a good name by misinformation, by hearsay, and by unreliable information. Often, gossip and slander is a lie. But no matter if it's a lie or a truth, gossip and slander are both detestable sins. Even if the words are true, it is a sin because the end goal of gossip is not to help your brother and sister in Christ. It's not to lift them up. But gossip tears your brother and sister in Christ down by providing words about what they're doing, but also providing the apathy to not help them to overcome the sin or whatever it is that they may be caught in. Gossip does not lift your brother up. It does not consider your brother or sister first. It transgresses not only the ninth command, but the heart of the fifth through the tenth command by not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Gossip and slander will destroy a church or really any organization. We have had people come through our fellowship, and I've dealt with people throughout my time in ministry who slander me or others, um, and they do it while they're here, and they do it after they've left. All while thinking that they are innocent of sin, but poisoning the local church. Gossip and slander are wrong because they hurt our neighbor. But they are also wrong because it is tearing down others to give the slanderer legitimacy. This goes back to uh, Jesus' commentary in Matthew 5. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. If I am a person of integrity and I am living in a truthful manner, I shouldn't have to slander a person to make my case against someone. Right? I should have the trust of those around me to where when I say something, they should understand that I wouldn't say it if it weren't true. But this is one of the main ways that we build our arguments up in life. This is one of the main ways that we all are complicit. We all are complicit in slander. Instead of just saying, this is the truth, we finish by saying, you should see what they did to me. You should hear what they've done. They did this, they did this, this is how they were wrong. Can you believe it? Friends, if our yes is yes and our no is no, then it should be enough just to tell those that love us and trust us what is going on in our lives without having to demean, tear down, or break someone else down to build ourselves up. Gossip and slander both participate in this. 
when there are two disagreeing points, instead of arguing our point or leaving it at that, we, we argue in an attempt to destroy other people. If we can't destroy their argument, what do we do? We destroy their character. And listen, I find myself leaning more moderate to conservative, but more moderate on a lot of things. But I will tell you, when I use the term liberal, I mean socially progressive. And that is the argument of the socially progressive liberal. If I can't beat the argument, break them down. If I can't if I don't have even the stomach to the the stomach or the gall to argue, then this is what I do. Racist, xenophobic, homophobic. Racist, xenophobic, homophobic. We can't just be people who attempt to, if we don't have an argument, if we don't have a leg to stand on it, especially if we're in the wrong, to tear down people with slander, to tear down people with our words in order to make ourselves look good. Now, not all conversation about life is bad or gossip, especially if your genuine attempt is to help someone. If you are talking with someone with a genuine attempt to formulate a plan to aid in someone's life, then you are actually building them up. Not all gossip, not all, excuse me, not all conversation is gossip. Not all conversation about other people's lives, even behind their back, quote unquote, is gossip or slander. When it comes to gossip, we can always remember these questions, and there are more that you might have seen on the internet or whatever, but these are three that I ask myself. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is, if what I'm saying isn't verifiably true, then we should never utter it because we, should, we would be caught in the sin of lying about our neighbor. We would be caught in the sin of slandering our neighbor. And you may say, well, I want to clear things up. I want to clear things up. But if you aren't directly involved and you're trying to clear things up, you don't need to clear things up. You need to trust those involved, especially if people are handling the situation, are your trusted leaders and people in your church, the leaders in your church. If you're not directly involved, you don't need to clear things up. You don't need a clear conscience to make a situation better. It isn't your prerogative to know everything about everything or even if it involves, even if it involves someone close to you. If what we are saying or asking isn't kind or it can't be said in a kind way, we would be breaking the command to love our neighbor. If it's not true, we would be breaking the command to love our neighbor. And if what we are saying is not necessary to help our neighbor or to solve a problem or for future learning, the, um, then, then we should avoid that conversation. Because in our speech, we are not making progress in edifying our neighbor. It is always wrong to speak, spread, and listen to gossip. Not just speak and spread it, but also listen. You are being a willing participant. Even if someone just blows it on you. I just want to tell you, I want to tell you. There's an old uh, rabbinic statement that says this. There are three victims of gossip and slander. Slander kills three, the one who speaks it, the one who listens to it, and the one about whom it is spoken. Friends, not only should you not participate actively in speaking gossip, but you should flee personally from gossip and stop gossip and slander when it comes from others. So, if you don't know how to do that, ask the people who are talking. Is what you're saying true? Is what you're saying kind? Is what you're saying necessary? Or ask them if this is gossip. Because if this is gossip, you don't want to be a part of it. It would be better to suffer a little bit of embarrassment at the hand of your friend than suffer um, punishment or, or disapproval at the hands of God. Don't speak gossip. Don't speak slander. Don't participate in it when other people do. I often 
because I'm a type of person who likes to give warnings before I shoot people, I say, this is going to sound like gossip, but it's not. And oftentimes, or sometimes it might be gossip. But I think if chances are, if someone says, this is going to sound like gossip, it may be gossip. So if like you're not going to speak gossip, probably you should stop saying that. I'm going to try to stop saying that too. If you're not going to speak gossip, if you're really trying to be helpful, if you're really saying something kind and true and necessary, you know, it's like saying, I'm not a racist. Typically, if you say that, well, you know, I'm not racist, but, well, I just can't stand black people. You know, that's, you know, you're a racist. Sorry. Um, Okay. So um, that was like the third little side sermon. But um, so gossip in any form, slander in any form, we should flee from. Another one, flattering or withholding necessary truth. Flattering or withholding necessary truth. Now, I won't spend too much time on this, but flattery or withholding necessary truth is lying. Flattering to get what you want is a form of lying unless you're doing it to be sincere and not for personal gain. Now, you are going to think this is ratchet as anything, but I will flirt and flatter with the Taco Bell girls to get extra hot sauce. I, it's not right. It's not, I know it's stupid. It's dumb. But I, you know, I try in general to be kind to people at a, at a window, a fast food window. You, you can ask my wife. I want people when we go to a fast food window to smile when they see me. I want them to be happy. Not just because I want my order right, but because I think they have a really cruddy job. And, and I want their day to be made a little bit better. But I love Taco Bell hot sauce. I mean, I'll put it on anything. Baked potatoes, whatever. And so I will flatter a little bit for the sake of getting Taco Bell, as my wife makes a nasty looking face, I will flatter, I will flatter to get, for the sake of getting some extra Taco Bell hot sauce. And I think even that is wrong. Flattery places people at an elevated position for reasons other than sincere kindness and goodness. And when we do that, it's wrong. Like gossip, it secretly deceives people, but in a positive way for selfish motivations. Withholding the truth is a lie. This is a form of flattery or appeasement, but it is often lying. We as a church and as as individuals should be truthful with each other in kind and necessary ways. We should help each other through shortcomings, not by avoiding them, but by embracing them together. We avoid withholding truth by being people who are frank and honest with those that we love. Withholding truth from people that you love is one of the most dishonest, disingenuous, and vile things that we can do. Because they will go on forever. People are not going to just naturally be like, oh, you know what, I've been doing this for my whole life. Let me just start doing something different. That's not the way the world works, if you can tell, by examining people. When you withhold the truth, you're being unkind. You're not loving your neighbor, and you're being vile. But often, friends, just because you're a person who speaks the truth doesn't mean you're not doing it in a vile way. Now, my big struggle in the past, and I think that I'm getting tremendously better at this, but my big struggle with this is this. When I see you do something in public, my struggle is to say, you know what, that was dumb, right in front of everybody. Right in front of everybody. We need to understand that when we are people who don't have trouble withholding truth, when we are people who are frank and honest, that the bet there is tact. And there, is way, there are ways that we do this that we don't end up being a vile, unloving jerk also. First of all, I think equity must be earned in people's lives. You don't just get to go up to somebody and say, you know how wrong you are right now? If you haven't taken the time to invest in their lives and earn equity in their lives. Earn equity in people's lives. Spend time with them. Not just for the sake so you can tell them that they're wrong later. But earn equity in their lives and spend time with them. We must be people who seek truth and community after equity is earned in order to be helpful. And correction should be done in the right context. It should be done in the right context. You shouldn't correct people in front of other people. Even if their sin was in front of other people. Unless it's so egregious that it has to be. We should not be people who withhold the truth to avoid controversy or let it blow over. Friends, I want you to know, just because things are quiet doesn't mean things are peaceful. Just because things are quiet doesn't mean things are peaceful. 
So in your family, you don't avoid controversy because, well, things seem okay right now. You don't avoid doing what's right because it's quiet and there's no argument. You do what's right. You say what's right. You don't let your children go on doing, especially older children, you don't let your children go on doing things that are ungodly and unjust because you want to keep the peace. But you also need to do that in a tactful way because guess what? Your children are humans also. Your children are people too. And you need to do that in a tactful and loving way, not in front of people, not for the sake of embarrassing them. In love, in kindness, in truth. Considering that your children are your neighbors also. And it breaks the second command when we don't love them in that way. Flattery or withholding necessary truth. Careless lies. Careless lies are still lies. There are lies that come from carelessness or overlooking details or or overlooking your schedule or simply just by forgetting. They sound something like this. I will get that for you later. Or to your children, not right now, but maybe later, without any intention of ever doing what you say. One of the biggest lies ever is, I will call you later, or we should hang out, without ever having the intention of doing those things. One for me and my business, and I've been going through this over the last two months, uh, one specific person owes me $500, and I keep hearing the check is in the mail. Being late when people are expecting you. Not coming through on something that you have promised. Or, or over-promising. One of, the biggest re- one of the biggest ways we break the ninth command through a careless lie is by wanting, having good intentions, wanting to do what's right, and over-promising and under-fulfilling. Whether it is right or not, I always live by my motto of under-promising, over-fulfilling. I don't know if it's right. It might be a pessimistic way of looking at things. But I under-promise or I under-guarantee and I try to over-fulfill. It's about motivation, really. Careless lies. We can be on time and fulfill promises, listen, when punishment is present. If we know we're going to be written up, if we know we're going to be fired... If we know that other punishment, maybe we'll fail a class. If we know that those things are present, we can do it. But when it's friends or when it's church or whatever it is, it is, there's no punishment. We are less motivated. And what we're saying in these instances is that the motivation to be a person that is trustworthy, the motivation to be someone we can look upon as honest is not as strongly as the motivation of punishment. If you're a person who is never on time or never returns text or calls or uh, often doesn't do what they say, you will likely be a person that other people stop trusting. And justifiably so. You may not get fired from a friendship, but you definitely won't be a, a go-to person if a need arises. Carelessness, careless lies, even though it often be, they often begin with good intentions, or often happen by accident. They, it is lying. A careless lie is still a lie because it goes against a promise that you have made. It's an area, and I'm not trying to make his head any larger because we all know about his head, but um, Blake excels in. Blake, he's got a big head is what I'm saying. Blake excels in. It's an area that Blake excels in. And it's one reason why like, I look back at all that Vintage Church could be, and it's one reason why I think, man, I am so glad that Blake is here with me because Blake is a person that is reliable. If I ask Blake to do something, I'm, I'm being completely honest. And again, I'm not trying to puff him up. I'm trying to give you a good example. I trust Blake as much as anybody in the world. I'm being completely truthful with you. I trust Blake as much as he's like, he's not unable to handle this right now. He's got a little kid grin on his, I'm just kidding. I trust Blake as much as anybody in the world. If I ask Blake to do something, if Blake says he's going to do something, I don't, even, I don't even have to question. It bothers him so much that I give him so much room. It bothers him. He always asks me for approval, and he always asks me for, is this right? But I give him so much room because there is not a doubt in my mind that what is done 
is going to be right. So if I could ask you anything, be a Blake in that instance, okay? Be a Blake. Be like Blake. Because here's the deal. With people like Blake, with, peop- with Blake in general, being dependable and trustworthy is important. Not just because he gets paid for it, but because he sees it as a matter of personal integrity. And he honestly treats it that way because he wants to be treated that way by others. Everyone needs somebody like that in their life. Imagine how overlooked it is until we really need something. But it's important to have someone that we can trust. And honestly, I want to be that person. I don't know if I'm always that person for you, but I want to be that person. And for whatever reason, whether it's over-promising, whether it's the fact that we're irresponsible and don't have a schedule, or whatever it may be, whatever reason, we should not be a person that allows careless lies to be lies because they're lies nonetheless. Hyperbole or exaggeration. Man, I really thought I was going to get done early. I think, I think that we have seen this most commonly in the political scene. If, if someone calls, uh, if you wear a MAGA hat, or if someone talks about Donald Trump, they say, or other conservatives, that he's racist, he's xenophobic, he's transphobic, he's any other phobic that are often exaggerated. Um, it's an exaggeration. It's often hyperbole. While some of these things are true about conservatives and liberals, it's not overall truth. It's not the truth overall. Through this exaggeration, the people often think that they're helping their point. But honestly, when we exaggerate, we are detracting from our point. This is one of the main causes for support of Trump and people like him. Because hyperbole and exaggeration often paint pictures of people in broad strokes, trying to pin people down to a certain belief or standard that they don't hold when it's really never that simple. There are also people who, what I would like to call, they have the Chris Traeger syndrome, where everything is literally the best thing in the world. Or if they are a pessimist, everything is literally the worst thing in the world. I have a friend growing up that I loved, but he and I love, and he loved and pursued everything with a great passion. But to him, everything that he loved and pursued was literally the best thing ever. And so, is he a person, a person like that? Is that a person that you take them at their word? Is that a person that their yes is yes and their no is no? Likely not. Because you look at them and you say, well, He said this last thing was literally the best thing he ever tried, and it kind of wasn't my cup of tea. So I need to examine this for myself. Exaggeration, hyperbole. Instead of saying yes and let that being it, instead of saying no and let that being it, you have to question people when they are exaggerative. I will tell you, since I've been so open and honest, and I've been highly convicted by the Ten Commands, but I've been highly convicted by this sermon— this, these are areas that I fell in drastically and still. I don't think of myself as a liar, but I, I'm, I was heavily convicted by preparing for this sermon because I use exaggeration and I use joking a lot. And there are two daggers that people used to say about me, and it gets said in a different way. One of these gets said in a different way now, but two daggers. And, and one was, I just can't see Bryce being a preacher That is like right in the heart, right in the heart. And the other is, you can't believe anything Bryce says. Daggers. Daggers. What and and people have people have good intentions by that. They're not like being vile or mean. What they're saying is that Bryce, you're a jokester. You joke. You have fun. You're funny. You can't believe anything Bryce says. And I would always say, except from the pulpit. You know, I'm truthful in other areas too, but I would always, because it would hurt me. It would hurt me to hear that. And so I've tried as, as best as I can, and I'm still working on this, to stop using so much exaggeration. It, I tell you guys, you don't believe it until you have kids, and then they start repeating you, and they start doing what you do. And you're like, why are you doing that? And you're like, oh my goodness, I literally, this same thing would have come out of my mouth to them. I mean, I see see it all the time. 
it's, it's not the most egregious of things, but it's bad because it, it makes our yes not just yes and our no not just no, which is the heart of the ninth commandment. And then the last would obviously be blatant lying. And it kind of goes without saying, but it needs to be said. Because some of us lie so well we don't even know we're doing it. Friends, it is drastically important that people are able to trust us as Christians. Because here's the deal. If they can't trust you about generic things in their life, why would they trust you with a gospel message? Why would they trust you with a gospel message? If they can't trust you to be dependable and honest, if they can't trust you to be just generically, generally trustworthy, why would they trust you that this gospel message you have is the most important thing they can ever hear? That's why I try to be reasonable. That's why I try to be truthful. Because I don't want to give any any reason for anybody to be able to take away from my presentation or anybody else's presentation of the gospel. So how do we keep the ninth, ninth command? I promise you, like, two minutes. How do we keep the ninth command? We believe in objective truth. We have to believe in objective truth. We have to believe it. Know that there is an absolute truth. We study objective truth. We study objective truth. We study the Word of God. You are failing to be a person who is true if you don't believe objective truth, absolute truth. We fail to be a person who is seeking truth if we don't study objective truth. We follow objective truth. It just isn't enough to study. It isn't enough to believe. We must follow. And friends, it isn't enough to study. It isn't enough to believe. It isn't just enough to follow. But we must teach objective truth. We must be disciple-lers, not just disciples. Believe objective truth. Study objective truth. Follow objective truth. Teach objective truth. Pray with me today. God, you are good, you are holy, and there is none like you. Lord, help us to be people who are truthful, Help us to be people who are honest. Help us to be people who are trustworthy. Help us to seek after you, Lord, every day in that manner. Lord, forgive us when we fail to be honest and true. Forgive us when we fail to do what is right. And help us to trust you do what is right, and to honor you in that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, and for his sake, amen.